We didn't start the fire. It was always burning since the world's been turning. We didn't light it, but we tried to fight it. Hear all about the fight in the danger zone. Amazing stories, incredible music, terrible singing about military history. I'm Paul. Sit back and relax if you can. If you're driving, don't even think of changing stations. You know how dangerous it is to take your hands off the wheel and your eyes off the road. Where, in the recesses of the mind of Ian Fleming, did James Bond come from? Last program I talked about the early days, how Ian Fleming grew up unsettled, but finally found his niche in intelligence. Today I'll tell you about Ian Fleming's wartime experiences, the people he worked with, Roald Dahl, the author of the children and adult novels, the famous British singer Noel Coward, the greatest Fifth Avenue advertising man ever, a Scot by the name of David Ogilvy, the outstanding British rebel of noble birth, a man born to European nobility, whose great-grandfather was the founder of the American chemical giant W.R. Grace & Co., who was tall, dark and handsome to the point of absurdity. He looked like an Aztec prince and was often mistaken for a film star, Ivar Bryce. He was a man of whom Lord Louis Mountbatten, a distant uncle, said, It's terrible the advantages he's had to overcome. This is a rip-roaring story, the cauldron from which James Bond steps immaculately in his tuxedo with every hair in place. Noel Coward, the famous singer and raconteur during the immediate pre-war era, now that war had come to England, was recruited as a spy by a Canadian businessman by the name of William Stevenson. I think Stevenson was the real inspiration for James Bond's Boss M, but more about that shortly. Stevenson was appointed at the instigation of Winston Churchill, to head up the British Secret Service operations in the United States as part of the unit known as British Security Coordination. His codename was stunningly appropriate, intrepid, meaning fearless. Admiral Godfrey had made the actual appointment. Coward had already met with Stevenson once before at his old headquarters at St Ermans Hotel. Now they'd moved to Baker Street, the street where the world's most famous fictional detective, Sherlock Holmes, had lived at 221B. There is no such address. The real British Secret Service was located now at 64 Baker Street. Noel Coward described this deliciously very spy meeting. I had to meet up with his contact in the foyer. I waited in this squalid place and eventually a man said, follow me. He wheeled me around into an elevator. It was only labelled to go up three floors. To my absolute astonishment, it went to the fourth floor. An immense fellow guarded the place, all scrunched up inside a porter's uniform. Well, this was the special operations executive, what we later called the Baker Street Irregulars. Some chap was saying that President Roosevelt wanted us to do his fighting. Stevenson was present, but kept to the background and was very calm and with those sort of hooded eyes, watching everything. Stevenson was an altogether remarkable man, 
Before the war, he'd been an entrepreneur and an inventor. He had an extensive variety of contacts in the highest levels of business and politics in the United States. He was a friend of Winston Churchill, who had stuck by him during those long years that Winston spent in the wilderness. After the war had broken out in 1941, Churchill sent Stevenson to New York to head up British intelligence operations there. There were real fears that America's isolationists would ensure that America did not get involved in the war against Germany. Who knows, but for the Japanese surprise attack on Pearl Harbor and Hitler's declaration of war on America, that might have been what happened. Stevenson's job, before America's involvement, was to do everything possible to counter the American isolationists and to try to get America involved in the war. Until then, he was to do everything possible to ensure that America would provide financial and industrial support to England to enable it to continue to fight on against Germany alone. Other people who worked with Stevenson, besides Noel Coward, included some people who would make a major mark on the world after World War II. Ian Fleming, the man who created James Bond, Roald Dahl, mostly famous as a children's author, Scotsman David Ogilvy, perhaps the greatest madman that there ever was on Fifth Avenue, the man who almost single-handedly made the advertising industry into what it was to become. Novelists whose reputations were already well-established when the war started were also recruited by Stevenson. They included the famous science fiction writer H.G. Wells, Somerset Maugham, C.S. Forrester and Winnie the Pooh creator A.A. Milne. Stevenson's network also got such famous and influential American journalists as Walter Winchell and Walter Lippmann on side. Stevenson's magnetic personality was what successfully brought this glittering talent onto his team, directly or through the work that they did. Stevenson was a workaholic. He did virtually nothing outside his work for the British Security Coordination. To the outside world, he was anonymous. No one not involved with his intelligence activities had even heard of him. His offices of the British Security Coordination Organisation were located on the 36th floor of the Rockefeller Centre. He got a bargain basement rate from his friend Nelson Rockefeller, who was also a huge fan of the English. The fact that the Rockefeller Centre was the home of NBC and was a stone's throw from CBS and many other major news organisations was an added bonus. Typically, Stevenson would work to midnight, go home and be back in the office at dawn the next day. He needed 11 secretaries to process the work that he generated. To make sure that he was always in immediate contact with the world, he had a state-of-the-art teleprinter installed in his offices. It was the absolute last word, latest thing, called a telecrypton ciphering machine the TK. It instantly coded or decoded messages coming in or being sent out. 
Stevenson was an inventor as well as an entrepreneur, and he drew on his knowledge of radio and electronics to improve the communications facilities that he had available to him and his team. He said, and I think to call it boasting would be to underrate his accomplishments, that it was by far the largest of its type in operation. Ian Fleming had been taken to America by his boss, Admiral Godfrey, to help set up British intelligence operations and to get something equivalent set up by the Americans to work with. The first time Ian Fleming met Stevenson at his offices in the Rockefeller Centre was in the spring of 1942. Ian Fleming's later ideas of the world that James Bond would inhabit were obviously awakened by the revelation of this high-energy man with his officers equipped with the latest toys. Ian Fleming said that he knew at once that he was in the presence of an extraordinary individual, a very tough, very rich, single-minded patriot. A man of few words, Fleming soon regarded Stevenson as one of the great secret agents and a man who had the quality of making anyone ready to follow him to the ends of the earth. Ian Fleming was in awe of Stevenson's elaborate setup and the vast array of sophisticated equipment that he had acquired. In Stevenson, Ian had found someone whose passion for sophisticated weaponry and gadgetry was even greater than his own. His obvious admiration for Stevenson saw them develop a quick rapport and a rapidly developing friendship. Perhaps Stevenson was not only Ian Fleming's inspiration for M, James Bond's boss, but also for Q, the man who would provide James Bond with his amazingly high-tech weapons. It wasn't long after meeting Stevenson that Ian Fleming started to routinely carry with him a small commando knife and a trick fountain pen that ejected a cloud of tear gas when the clip was pressed. James Bond was clearly gestating. One of the major handicaps the British had in building a working relationship with the Americans was the fact that the Americans had no secret service organisation of their own that they could work with. This was a serious deficiency that had to be cured as soon as possible. Admiral Godfrey visited America to see just what intelligence gathering operations the Americans had and what they needed to improve on. Ian Fleming accompanied him. Godfrey's first port of call was J. Edgar Hoover. He was the head of the FBI. The FBI had only just recently been set up by President Roosevelt as part of his New Deal. Its role was to fight crime, not to carry on government intelligence operations in respect of foreign countries. Hoover was an empire builder. He added counterintelligence to the FBI's list of functions, but it really did nothing in that line of investigation. This FBI involvement caused a crippling of the efforts of the British to work with the Americans in the intelligence field. The English were old hands at this game. The frustrations of dealing with the naive, inexperienced, bumbling Americans were extreme. The FBI made no effort to 
collect intelligence from friendly and neutral countries, let alone from countries that might become the enemies of America. That didn't mean that J. Edgar Hoover would willingly give up that function. Another part of the American intelligence operations, left over from the First World War, was the US Army's Signal Intelligence Service. It was outdated and understaffed in the climate of isolationism. Who cared what the rest of the world was doing, as long as they left America alone? That was the attitude. The Navy and the State Department also had their own intelligence-gathering organisations. And none, not one of these bodies, shared any of the intelligence they had gathered with the others. It was a hopeless system, and unless it was rectified, it would damage America and England in dealing with the world that they were then facing. Pretty much the only intelligence the American government was getting about what was happening in the world came from foreign governments that were kind enough to tip them off about anything that concerned them, and also through the kindness of its allies. America was nowhere yet near being the great power that it would become over just the next couple of years. Admiral Godfrey and Ian Fleming had been introduced to J. Edgar Hoover. Hoover took an instant dislike to both men. They were intruding on his turf, and he never tolerated that. Hoover gave them a brief tour of the FBI shooting range and the forensic laboratory and then showed them the door. He had no intention of working with these foreigners and rivals. Luckily, the intelligence advisor to President Roosevelt, Vincent Astor, in his last days in that role, was sympathetic to what the British were trying to do to help the Americans. He passed on the many British complaints about the American intelligence failings. He told President Roosevelt, It is certainly a bit difficult to conduct an effective blitzkrieg of our own against malefactors when information becomes stymied in department's files for six weeks. He was mainly referring to the FBI, which tended to get intelligence reports, stick them in their in-tray, and forget about them. Fixing this serious American mess into a system that would work well for the Americans and the British in this coming time of enormous crisis was the biggest challenge that Stevenson had to overcome. What he did would play a major part in the future life of the as-yet-unborn James Bond. But for a workaholic like Stevenson, it would be true to say that he had no time to die Stevenson had long been pressing for the Americans to set up their own properly dedicated intelligence agency, headed up by somebody that the English could work with. The man that Stevenson wanted to head it up was probably not going to be a hard sell. He'd been a classmate of President Roosevelt during his days as a student at Columbia Law School. He was an Irishman with a powerful, irresistible personality. He'd won a chest full of medals in World War I, he commanded the legendary fighting 69th Regiment, known as the Irish Regiment, from its days in the American Civil War. Donovan had gone on to run for politics for the Republican Party, 
It was known far and wide by the colourful name of Wild Bill Donovan. The fact that Roosevelt was a Democrat didn't stop him making use of the valuable services of the talented Donovan. In 1940, Roosevelt sent Donovan to England. The official reason was to look into the threat posed by what were called the Fifth Column, people who were working to promote the interests of Nazi Germany. The real purpose was to assess whether the grim reports of the American ambassador to England, Joseph Kennedy, the father of the later president, John Fitzgerald Kennedy, were right. Kennedy felt that England would soon surrender to Nazi Germany. Roosevelt didn't want to have America put effort into supporting a lost cause. Stevenson courted Donovan made sure he had a meeting with Churchill and every other important Englishman that he needed to meet. Donovan left convinced that England was going to fight. By 18 June 1941, Stevenson's aims were achieved when President Roosevelt established a new intelligence agency to replace all of the organisations in various branches of government that were not coordinating their efforts. The new body was first called the Office of Coordinator of Information. What an awful name, but it would soon be replaced with a new, more appropriate name. Its job was to advise the President on all aspects of intelligence, propaganda and special operations. The problem for Donovan was to figure out what the role and scope of his organisation was going to be and what the role of its operatives would be. He needed help from an experienced hand. Ian Fleming was that man. He was introduced to Wild Bill Donovan, and that proved to be the basis of a new and important friendship for Ian Fleming and Donovan. Donovan was impressed by the fact that Ian Fleming didn't suffer at all from very senior officer veneration. That was how one of Ian Fleming's colleagues in naval intelligence Donald McLaughlin described him. Fleming stood up to very senior people who were his superiors in the military hierarchy, which benefited the Baker Street Irregulars, as Stevenson's people preferred to be called. Ian was more gutsy in this than even Admiral Godfrey, his boss. Ian found Donovan to be a splendid American. Their mutual respect definitely proved to be important. Donovan had to be a real trailblazer in setting up his new intelligence organisation, and Ian Fleming's knowledge of that territory and his audacity made him a perfect fit to get Donovan's new organisation up and running. Soon after Wild Bill Donovan was appointed to head up the new US intelligence organisation, Ian Fleming was invited to stay at his Georgetown residence for several days. It's a matter of enormous dispute between the Americans and English what happened over those days. Ian Fleming's version is that he drafted the original charter of the new organisation, which had now been renamed as the OSS, the Office of Strategic Services. Not long after World War II, its successor would acquire the name that is still known today, the CIA. Ian Fleming also said that he had drafted a second document, which he called My Memorandum to Bill on How to Create an American Secret Service. 
The Americans contended that neither of these memos fully constituted the cornerstone of the future OSS, as Ian Fleming later claimed. But the Americans do acknowledge that the memos were a thoughtful, practical outline of the new kind of wartime organisation that Bill Donovan had to build up. The Americans certainly benefited from the British Secret Service's century of intelligence experience. Ivor Bryce, who I mentioned at the beginning of this program, was brought into the Secret Service by Ian Fleming. He'd been an Eton classmate and close friend of Ian Fleming. Bryce said that Ian told him that he wrote the charter out in longhand. He said, as a sort of imaginary exercise, describing in detail all the arrangements necessary for financing, paying, organising, controlling and training as a secret service in a country that had never before had one, and it included a mass of practical detail on how much use could be made of diplomatic sources of intelligence, how agents could be run in the field, how records could be kept, and how liaison could be established with other governments. Ian included in his notes to Donovan his idea of the ideal American intelligence officer. He must have trained powers of observation, analysis and evaluation, absolute discretion, sobriety, devotion to duty, language and wide experience, and be aged between 40 and 50. Donovan, in gratitude for Ian's help before he left Washington, presented him with a 38 Colt Police positive revolver with the inscription for special services. Ian later implied that he'd been given the gun as a reward for far more dangerous work than simply drafting these memos, important as they were. But Ian Fleming was soon to get some experience of being an agent in the field. But more about that in my next program. Thanks for joining me, Paul, for The Danger Zone.